everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the HR Evolution or Revolution, whatever way you want to look at it. We This show is all about the revolution of HR for the evolution of business. And we do this through conversations with industry experts like Dr. Solange today, um, as well as other HR practitioners. Now, we understand that you probably have a lot of other things to be doing with your time. So anybody that is fortunate uh, enough to, to be listening to this show today, um, you're really going to start learning a lot um, from Dr. Solange. So my buddy and I, Chris Derone, um, and Bobby Spaziani have kicked off this passion project to really elevate the conversations that HR are having within the business and to ensure that they're always asking good business questions and, and stressing the importance of always providing value back to the organization as well as the employees. So, Chris, will you quickly introduce yourself? Absolutely. Thanks, Kevin. My name is Chris Drone, as Kevin said, HR uh, professional, more on the learning and development, organizational design and development side, but really excited to be here today. And you guess what? Our guest today, Dr. Salon Shara. She is a human capital expert with over 25 years experience as a human capital consultant, a best practice leader, top corporate executive, and board director across all industry sectors. Dr. Solange is also the founder and CEO of HC Moneyball, which is a cloud-based platform that combines human capital data and financial data into meaningful and actionable insights in order to maximize business outcomes and results. On behalf of Kevin and myself, we want to thank you, Dr. Solange, for taking time to talk with us, and we want to welcome you to the show. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much. It's so awesome to be having a conversation with someone that started off in finance, um, and my father being in finance. It's a fascinating conversation because that, uh, when him and I get to connect, we get to talk about human capital and its impact on the profit and loss statement that they uh, scour over. Now, a lot of people don't think people in HR have lives, but also people in finance, we believe, that don't have lives outside of work. Solange, what do you do for fun? <laughs> you have to start with a hard question, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, you know, pre-COVID versus post-COVID, right? Um so uh, I am, believe it or not, a very artistic person. And what I do for fun is anything that I can use my hands to create. So anything artsy craftsy is like my passion. Um, and the other thing that I do for fun, since I you know, haven't been able to travel in a couple of years, um, is I love science fiction. I'm a big science fiction fan. Um, and uh, what are we saying like Star Wars, Star Trek? What what type of science fiction are we you know, into? I like to read science fiction. Okay. Although I'm watching the Foundation series, okay, um, the Isaac Asimov mm -hmm. that took them what forty years to create a TV <laughs> show, um, and that that's piqued my interest. But um, I actually like reading science fiction rather than watching science fiction because. I think my mind creates more fantastic, you know, mise-en-scene, as the French would say, you know, more, it's, it's more fantastical scenarios that I create in my own mind than I can see um, on, a, you know, in a visual um, representation. So That's I so like fun. to read science fiction. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's fantastic. Hey, can you help us just understand, as Kevin mentioned, you don't have the typical traditional kind of career path or career development that took you, you know, from, from doing what you do to the, you know, CHRO position. So can you walk us through kind of your career path, Dr. Solange, and just help us to sure. identify with you? Um, I'll spare you everything that came before the MBA. <laughs> I was going on LinkedIn. I was just scrolling. I was like, holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? If you live long enough, you get to do enough things. Right. I don't think it's it's really a function of how special I am. I think it's just a function of how old I am. Because, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just do lots of things. Um, I my MBA is in accounting and finance with a minor in taxation. Trust me, I never wanted to go into HR it was never an uh, interest for me. In fact, the only HR class I took in my MBA studies at Cornell was a class called organizational behavior. 
And that was taught by a guy named Richard Thaler. Yes. If you've heard of Richard Thaler, you know that he won the Nobel Prize in Behavioral Economics. Wow. So my only HR class (laughs) was actually a behavioral economics class. And um, I graduated in 1988, right after the 1987 crash. I wanted to go into corporate finance. I had a few offers, which... Um, you know, I guess you should never look back and say I made a mistake not taking them, but I had a few offers and decided that banks use the LIFO method of what I then called personnel management, mm-hmm. which is like how un-HR I was. And I said, I'm just going to take this other offer in consulting and wait for the financial services industry to sort of work its way out of the, you know, rebound from the crash. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'll go back to finance and I'll go back to the financial services industry in a year, you know, like once they figured out who they're firing and who they're keeping. (laughs) The consulting firm that I accepted a job offer from was the Hay Group. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Fantastic. That put me squarely in the HR area, but in a very specialized part of HR, which has to do with comp and numbers and analysis. So um, I did that for a few years and really worked my my way up to executive compensation because that's really where you get to use or you get to combine what I was learning at the Hay Group around compensation, remuneration, rewards behavioral economics, right? What motivates people to take action and then marry that with my finance and accounting around designing long-term incentive plans and understanding the impact on financial statements. So I sort of worked my way up into an executive comp consultant role and then left the Hay Group um, and went to Ernst & Young in their exec comp. And I speak a couple of languages and have a sort of international background. So the international work was always really interesting for me. And at Ernst & Young, there's lots of inter- opportunities for international work. So I basically became their international comp consultant within the, um, I think at the time it was called the ABC team, Actuarial Benefits and Compensation Consulting. Okay. And so I sort of carved out a little international niche for myself where I was doing global long-term incentive plan design across different tax regimes and currency control. Um, You know, you know, um, I guess. All into the weeds, all (laughs) into the weeds there. Yes. Yes. So, So one of the things that I've noticed and Chris and I noticed when we were going in and having conversations with organizations is there's seemingly a massive disconnect between finance and HR. Right. Um, And uh, seeing that your background in finance, right. In taxation, when did you come to the realization that people had a greater impact on the bottom line than was previously maybe, um, told to you uh, throughout your uh, academic uh, part of your career? Um, I think the big realization came when I was at Arthur Anderson. So I left Ernst & Young, had a brief stint at Towers Perrin, and then ended up at Arthur Anderson. And I reported to a guy named David Walker, who left Arthur Anderson and became the head of the GAO for the U.S. government. And so he was our chief accounting officer. But when he was at Arthur Anderson, he believed that um, there's a, a huge um, missing piece in the way companies manage their investments and their allocations. And from an activity-based cost accounting perspective, he realized that human capital was being ignored. And, and, it was being ignored. Human capital was considered to be a sunk cost, considered to be an expense, right? And um, he was a firm believer that there is a way to quantify not only the hard dollar, but the soft dollar, right? The activity-based expense of human capital so that we can begin to measure a return on that investment. And back in 1996, he was probably one of the first practitioner thinkers 
that looked at human capital as an investment instead of an, as an expense. And we wrote a book while well, I'm looking on my bookshelf. We wrote a book. Um, we, first, we created a methodology to capture that, to quantify it, to benchmark it, and then correlate human capital performance to corporate financial performance. Um, and um, the design team was a global team. So we had people from Europe, um, I was the only woman on the team. <laughs> of course. Um, of course. I'm, I'm not surprised. I was say, that, like, yeah. We haven't um, made much progress even and, still today. Yeah. True. Um, and we wrote a book called um, Delivering on the Promise, uh, Measuring the Return on Investment in Human Capital. Um, so my mindset was baked at that point. My mindset was it's not just a sunk cost. It's actually an investment in, in an asset. Yes. I don't think we distinguished it as an intangible asset, the way the SEC has just mm -hmm. pronounced it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I've been consulting to my clients since 1996 with this mindset that, you know, we invest a lot in our people. We probably should be looking for a return, quantifying impact. Um, and, you know, even back then we knew that there were costs associated with all sorts of things like attrition, yeah. right. Um, lack of engagement, you know, pro low productivity levels. Um, we actually did some work where we tried to quantify when two companies merged or a company purchased mm -hmm. another, acquired another, what happened to employee productivity and how to quantify that economically. So we were always in that space of trying to actually put some, some rigor around the um, opportunity loss for an organization when they mismanage their employee programs and their human capital in general. Of course, we didn't call it human capital back then, but yeah how far we've come, right? Like it went from being a conversation that nobody could engage in because they just didn't even have the, they didn't either have the vocabulary or the interest to what board directors are talking about now as part of ESG. Yeah. So I, I guess I'm lucky that I got, I didn't go that financial route because if you fast forward 30 years later, I would just be another finance person. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. Sure, sure. But, you know, now a more worldly, worldly view, really, and, and taking into consideration a multi multitude of uh, factors, right? Um, and I, I was always amazed by how many businesses were simply making business decisions off of the financial statement. Chris. Yeah, I think you bring up a lot of good points already. And, you know, you mentioned the ROI of human capital. And it's, you know, it's something, as you said, 25 years it's been going on, but now it's really feels like the lid is busting off, you know, and, and this is where there's, there's a kind of a, a sprint to get organizations up to speed in order to, 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 you know, to fulfill these requirements. So where, where, where can we see organizations, you know, what help can we provide organizations now that they know that, Hey, this isn't a nice to have, this isn't something we just want to talk about, but this is actually becoming a. A, trans, a requirement in transparency. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the first thing, um, I mean, which direction do I go in? The first thing I want to say is there isn't one size that fits all. So different companies are different, different industries are different. Um, they have different levels of human capital investment intensity. Um, some organizations, some industries don't require a lot of human capital human energy to actually be successful, like reinvest, uh, real estate investment trusts, mm. right? Lots of assets under management, few people generating a lot of value. That's that industry. Go to the other extreme, which is banking. Um, banks can't exist without humans delivering products and services sure. to their customers. So that's really that those that industry has a high level of human capital investment intensity and you need to figure out what sector you're in and then you need to figure out what your competitive advantage is in that sector um, but it's important to understand that um, when we allocate budget to human capital to people and people programs we should expect to see some type of a return yeah. 
right? And that return has to be more than break even. And that's why HCROI is such a nice, simple measure because it shows an organization whether or not they're actually breaking even or doing better in mm. terms of a return on that intangible asset. So, um, you know, we want to, we, ideally your HCROI, which is the return on investment for every dollar invested in people and people programs should at a minimum be one, right? For every dollar mm. you invest, you should get a dollar back because anything below one, you're, you're leaking, you're mm -hmm. oozing value, right? And you, you know, any rational decision maker would not invest in something where they're not getting at least a break even return. And so the first level of, you know, the first indicator is, do we have a one higher or lower mm -hmm. than one return on investment in human capital? And that's a really easy thing to measure. And that's a, a good indicator of the material impact of human capital on your financial performance. And, and do you think do you think that just having that information, Dr. Solange, right, the, just that that sheer knowledge, right, the, that shared now between finance and HR that they can now see, like for every dollar we invest in our people, we have a let's say a dollar thirteen return. Mm -hmm. You see that that just elevates the conversation because then Absolutely. probably they go back to well, how do we how do we see a greater return? Like where do we make investments? What have you found? I know you've done a lot of work now with HCROI, something that Jack Fitzsens came up with 35, 40 years ago and is only now coming to the forefront of organizations is being called one of the most misunderstood but most powerful uh, financial uh, formulas uh, for the future of business. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up Jack because before when I said we were benchmarking at Arthur Anderson, we were actually working with Jack and oh the Saratoga Institute to create those benchmarks. So, you know, and Jack only benchmarked or created a, a, a benchmarking database for human capital performance indicators, mm -hmm. not out yeah. back then. I don't know what they've done now because I know that Saratoga is now owned by PwC, but I don't know, you know, what they're looking at, but Yes. I mean, Jack was instrumental in this long tail transformation. Um, so HCROI is pretty easy to calculate and it actually shows, it is actually a good indicator of materiality. So, you know, we want to look at it like a decision tree, right? So the first is sort of the highest order, the the broadest indicator, which is this indicator of materiality. And you can use HCROI, which is, again, very easy to calculate. The algorithms are out there. If you want to, you know, find where the, where the you know, you want to find what the algorithm is. I've written a lot about it. You could probably go on our HC Moneyball website and find a paper. Um, we published it in the conference board, a Brave New World report. Um, there's an article coming out now in the NACD, National Association of Corporate Directors, Directorship Magazine. We give the formula there. So it's out there and it's a it's a um, rigorous, you know, it's a consistently applied um, formula. If you don't want to do it by yourself, you can go to our HCROI calculator. You type in five numbers and we'll show you what your HCROI is. There are other indicators, though. There's human capital value add. So what is the contribution of employees to your profitability? There's HEVA, human economic value add. There's HCMV, human capital market value. So mm -hmm. there are lots of these different indicators. You don't have to, as I said, one size doesn't fit all. You have to pick the indicator that you think is best representative of your business within your industry sector. So that's at the top line. Mm -hmm. And I like the way that you're you're framing this conversation. It's now a dialogue between HR and finance. Great, right? We love that. That's the first hurdle. <laughs> That's the first hurdle. Then the question becomes, if we want to improve our HCROI, which has a direct mm -hmm. and significant relationship to EBITDA performance, because they use the same numbers, mm -hmm. yeah. um, what do we have to do from a human capital perspective to increase our HCROI performance. Exactly. 
And that's where the H, the human capital practitioner, really gets to take over because they have to figure out what programs are going to generate the biggest benefit for the employees right. for the and for the organization. And, you know, Chris, is it more learning and development? And how do we measure the ROI of our learning and development budget allocation? Or is it around onboarding? Or is it around mobility? Or is it around performance management? Or is it around comp and benefits? We need to look at each one of our programs, which is, you know, what we were doing back in 1996 with a human capital appraisal approach where we were actually looking at different programs and understanding how effective and efficient those programs were for HR. Now we're broadening it out and we're saying, how does it impact the organization? And I think, you know, to quote Dave Ulrich, HR shouldn't be done for HR's sake. HR should be done to support the enterprise in achieving its goals. And I love tying it back to the organization. So HR stops being a siloed function Mm -hmm. to the side because most HR people don't speak a financial language. They speak an HR language, Mm -hmm. right? So not only is it siloed, but it's marginalized. And if we think that HR is done to support the organization, not just HR goals, you can't marginalize it anymore and you can't silo it because now it has to be a horizontal function, not a vertical function in your organization. And so we love HR people having conversations with operating people, with financial people, Mm -hmm. with marketing people, with salespeople, right? So that's what we want to see. So there's a lot to unpack there. So thank you for that, Dr. Zalange. But two things stuck out of my mind. Uh, Number one, thank you for addressing that learning development and organizational development aspect, because that's near and dear to my heart. And I heard you say in a recent conversation that you had that um, as we're looking at, you know, how do we how do we decide the value or determine the value that those programs are providing? We're shifting away from a best practice approach into a best evidenced approach. Right. And, and for for me, I was always OK. We don't want the best seller. We don't want the flavor of the month. You know, that's not going to work for us. We were always focused on best practices. Let's find out what's going. So help help me and hopefully other people who are watching the podcast understand what does that mean to go from a best practice approach to a best evidence approach? Right. So um, I guess essentially the framework is a little different. So a best practice typically looks externally, right? So also when we were, when I was at Arthur Anderson, we were building this best practices library. And that meant we looked at all of our clients and we said, what are they doing that works well for them, Mm -hmm. right? So a best practice approach typically looks outward. It looks outside of the organization. And I think, you know, you'll, you'll fall into one of two schools where you say, yeah, that's the right thing to do, right? Let's figure out what other people are doing and let's do it ourselves. Or you fall into the other school, which is what they're doing may not have any relevance to what I'm doing because I have a different business model. I have a different set of uh, different, you know, competitive analysis or competitive advantage indicators. And I'm obviously of the latter school. (laughs) I don't think you should ever look at another organization to see what they've done to try to copy it. Just it's like crazy, right? So best practice is externally focused. Best evidence is internally focused. And best evidence means we actually do data analytics to understand whether or not what we're doing is successful. Sure. And not just from a qualitative perspective, and I don't want to, you know, knock qualitative stuff because it's super important, but I'm a quant person. So show me data, (laughs) back up your position and your point of view with evidence and let the numbers tell the story. Let the numbers support the story that you're Mm -hmm. telling. And if we find that even in learning and development, you know, we've got budgets allocated for different types of Mm -hmm. learning for different constituents in the organization. And there's a way to assess the um, effectiveness of that learning, right? You either 
what most organizations do is they survey the the learner. Yeah, managers or managers, yeah. Surveying the managers is like already outer space, right? (laughs) Organizations don't go to the managers and say, your employee just went to some training. Did it change the way they perform in their job? I mean, that's sort of like an afterthought. Mm -hmm. So if you can do both, then you can really understand. The other way that you can do it, other than a direct way, which is where you actually survey people or talk Mm -hmm. to people, you can look at the latent variables. So you can say, oh, we invested in this employee or in this group of employees Mm -hmm. or in this job type, this kind of training. And look, they're getting mobility and advancement at a rate that's higher than anybody else or any other type of job or group. So maybe that training is really working. So sometimes you can get evidence by looking at the latent variables, not at the direct variables. Exactly. And you're that's almost, yeah. Go ahead. You're almost that's focusing great. more on the inputs and the outputs, right? It, it, it's really, it's a focus on, on, on what do we need to put in in order to get the desired end state. And it's almost like an afterthought, right? If we know we're putting it in on the front end. One of the things you talked about was yeah. the, the, uh, the SEC changes that are coming, right? And I know it's in the tool that you have um, famed now with uh, over at uh, HC Moneyball. Um, and a, a great play on words, right, with Billy Bean. Um, or, excuse me, uh, is it Billy Bean? Yes, yes. Um, it's Billy Bean of the Oakland A's, and it's Michael right. Lewis who wrote the book. That's Correct. right. So with that play, right, we know the SEC is just coming out and saying that the valuations of corporations back in the 70s was 17% intangible and 83% tangible. Now in where we are today, that, that rate is as high as 90%, 90%. intangible and 10%. So why do you think now, right, Jack Fitzens had had created this for 35, 40 years ago, why now is the top coming off, right? Is, is it the correlation that in that ESG movement that they understand that there's a little bit more behind the curtain than just the financial statements of the validity of the organization and the long-term success? In your opinion, why is the top coming off now? Um, I think the top, so before I go there, um, Ocean Tomo are the people that actually did that research. Okay. So we want to make sure we give them credit for that. Mm-hmm. The SEC used that as a data, as input to understand that they need to change their mindset about human capital. Why do I think, you know, the tsunami is breaking now? Um, I think it's a bunch of things that are going on. So exogenously from the outside, the external factors um, is, you know, the SEC waking up and saying human capital is not just a, an expense, mm-hmm. but actually an investment and an intangible asset. Thank you, Ocean Tomo. Mm-hmm. You know, we can use the transitive um, principle in math that if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? Mm-hmm. If, if um, human capital is seen as an intangible asset and intangible assets make up 90% of the S&P 500 market value, then human capital makes up 90% or some portion of, you know, that market value. So I think that there's an awakening Mm -hmm. to employees are our greatest asset, right? Mm -hmm. Like if employees are our greatest asset, where do they show up on the balance sheet? Yeah, exactly. I think that's coming. I think in the next five years, we're actually going to see a line item yeah. on the balance sheet for employees. I don't know. I leave it to the accountants to figure out. <laughs> but I do believe we need to capture that value somehow. And I also think the accounting for things like sign-on bonuses and training and development is going to be multi-period, like long-term incentives, mm-hmm. than just single-period expenses. So I think a lot of things are coming in the future. But Externally, I think that there's uh, this awareness that human capital is not just a sunk cost and a necessary evil. Yeah. Um, thank you to Ocean Tomo for pointing that out to us. Thank you to the SEC for waking up. Um, thank you for the uh, governance monitoring agencies that are engaged in ESG, right? Because mm-hmm. employees are part of the S of ESG. Thank you to the Business Roundtable who... Um, 
you know, I don't know if you saw the announcement, but Mary Barra is now going to be heading up the business roundtable. Yay! Yeah. So we've got a, a, woman, a woman in that role. Yeah, so well, thank you for the business roundtable for redefining the purpose of the corporation. And those are all external things. I think what happened to from the internal view um, are a couple of big things. One is about five years ago, maybe a little bit more around that neighborhood, um, the chief financial officer role was evolving, sort of got redefined from simply managing the investments of the corporation and um, creating financial statements mm -hmm. to managing the efficiencies in the organization. Yeah. And I think, you know, for a couple of decades now, we've all, we've always been looking on at how to optimize our return on investment in tangible assets. No. Save, right? time, save time and money, all right? Save yeah. time and money. <laughs> how do we invest, you know, what do we need to invest in our manufacturing process to make it more efficient? Sure. When we invest in this piece of plant property and equipment, what is our NPV? What is our IRR? You know, mm -hmm. how are we going to see a return on this? And that's, you know, I think been the focus for the last decade or so of chief financial officers is that optimization of investment in tangible assets. We've done it. We've engineered it. We've re-engineered it. We've optimized it. And now the last frontier, if you want to use as, you know, science fiction, the last <laughs> frontier is the frontier of human capital. And the problem with human capital and the reason that it wasn't tackled first, because most of the time for most organizations, that's more than 50% of an organization's operating expense yeah. are people. And I think the reason that the chief financial officers and the analysts have basically said, oh, this is 50 to 55% to 60 to 80% of our operating expense, but let's just put it over here and let's deal with the things that we can deal with. Mm -hmm. Why? Because people are messy. Yeah. Resources yeah. is sort of a touchy feely. They're unpredictable. Finance is not like unpredictability. Yeah. Yes. So when I was the head of HR for a services organization, so I was the chief human resources officer for three companies, one in advertising and two in financial services. Okay. And I would, you know, either ride down or ride up in the elevator with the CEO of the company. And he'd say, so, you know, What's on your mind? And I said, if I could only hammer their little feet to the floor every night, I would be so happy, right? Because I knew I would know where my employees are and I'd know that they'd be there in the morning. Mm -hmm. But you can't do that with people. It's not like you buy a piece of equipment and you yeah. screw it to the floor, right? Mm -hmm. People come and go and they are a rational decision maker. So how do you predict something? How do you optimize something that you can't predict? Mm -hmm. And I think... We got to the point where we got to tackle this now because there is no other place in the organization to squeeze out more efficiency. You're right. Yeah. And the good news is that um, we now have technology that allows us to do that. Exactly. I think that was the big hurdle there. And it's funny listening and, you know, how many companies say people are our most important asset, yet they're the last ones that we take a look at, right? Yeah. So it's it's just, it's a head scratching moment there. And what did COVID teach us? No, and I think yeah. that's another reason that, as um, Kevin, you said, the top is off of the box, exactly. um, is because COVID taught us, I mean, it blows my mind to think that before COVID happened, only about 10% of companies had a work from home policy. Yeah. Yeah. And within the matter within a matter of months, weeks. 90% weeks, yeah. weeks yeah. 90% of companies allowed their employees to work remotely. Yeah. And what did they find? They found that productivity was up. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Engagement was up. Yeah, maybe we have more burnout and maybe yeah. That intensity led to what we're seeing now is the great resignation. Mm -hmm. But my mom used to say the arm of the pendulum has to swing Back. both, yeah, ways, both ways. ways before it finds its equilibrium. Mm -hmm. And so we had COVID on one side and the pendulum is swinging out of the great resignation. But I think everything's going to 
eventually calm down yeah. and uh, we'll find a new way. And CEOs are rethinking their business models because after employee expense, the second largest fixed expense for an organization is real estate. Yeah, the mm -hmm. fancy office buildings that yeah. they spent millions and millions of dollars on that are and now the, sitting empty. And then the, the third is travel. Yeah, exactly. right? business and overall business expense. Yeah, and that's and so one of the things, right? We talk about um, uh, the finance being uh, the conversation usually broke down between HR and finance because they were focused on an emotional topic, right? They they spoke in terms like engagement, retention, and really they would get into the meetings and say, "All right, our turnover is seventeen percent," but that's where the conversation ended. We talk about applying the intellectual capital that a lot of these HR practitioners and professionals have been developing over the last, call it 10, 15, 20 years that they've been in these positions. And Chris and I and others are really about the evolution or revolution of the function, right? What would you say is where HR professionals skills are required in today's environment to really maximize, right? What the HCROI and some of the other formulas that you had mentioned are telling the business, how can they, or how do you suggest, Dr. Solange, that they apply that intellectual capital to know what to ask of the data and where to focus first? Yeah, so two big topics. One is around the human capital professionals' capabilities and competencies, and the other is around um, the, the practical application of that. So in this column, um, Human capital professionals, I don't care what level you are, you need to learn two things, financial literacy and data literacy. Yeah. And um, my commitment is I teach HR analytics and quantitative methods and models for decision makers and a, a, a finance for effective human capital management um, at the three universities where I teach as yeah. an adjunct. And what I'm trying to do is prepare the HR, the future HR professional to have that language, data literacy and financial literacy, yeah. so that they can actually speak the language of the business. Business is spoken in a financial language and HR people, as you say, speak in soft terms like attrition, you know, attrition went down, attrition went up, engagement, you know, mm -hmm. what the example that I always give and I don't know if this is appropriate here. And if it isn't, you can cut it out. But Gary Larson. <laughs> oh, we're definitely keeping it now. Yeah. Gary, Gary Larson had a little, a little cartoon. Yeah. You know, a cell divided in two. It's my favorite one, obviously. And it's what um, it's a owner speaking to his dog, and the top says what man says to ginger. And the guy is pointing his finger at Ginger and he's saying, right, Ginger, I don't want you to get in the garbage anymore, Ginger. Stop being a bad girl, Ginger. And the bottom is what Ginger hears. And what Ginger hears is blah, 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 yeah. Ginger, blah, 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 <laughs> blah, blah, Ginger. Yeah. Right? And for me, that's like HR speaking to finance. Mm, right? Great. HR people are speaking and what finance hears is blah, 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 because mm. they can't. They don't understand terms like engagement and culture. What does that mean? What does that mean financially? So I'm trying to teach HR people how to not use that language, how to say our attrition went from 11% to 7% over the last year, and that saved us $1.2 exactly. million in expense. Yeah. A finance person can hear that now, right? Yeah. Because it's numbers and it's it's the language of business. It's either creating revenues or managing expenses. That's basically, you know, the algorithm, right? Revenues minus expense equals profit. So you're either helping me enhance my top line or you're helping me manage my expense line, right? And faster HR people can hear that and understand that the faster they'll have, the easier the on-ramp will be for them to actually partner with the CFO and yeah. other operating executives in the organization, other than just supplying the labor input. Sure. I love that. We need to go beyond that. 
Yeah. And one That's of the fantastic. Things, oh, yeah, sorry, one of the, sorry, Chris. One thing I wanted to ask, right? We talk about the generally accepted accounting practices, right? Um, those are um, how finance is relatively held accountable, right? And and at the time, they were just bookkeepers. They were only providing a very limited value before they came out with this almost accountability, right? Um, and then they were arming the CEO with new information than they previously had, immediately making them more valuable to the organization. And then we went through this time where businesses and leaders were driving business decisions off of their financial statements, right? And it's almost like driving, you and I say it, with like, in your rear view mirror, driving your car with your rear view mirror. What do you see with the ISO certifications, the new SEC requirements and EEL1 picking back up? Do you see this as HR's opportunity to, to be held more accountable and to grow their value within the business uh, more so than the, what they were previously? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know that there's anything to add to that, but, but to say, um, again, the fast... So this is what I advise my students and advise my clients. H, uh, finance is going to want to take over anything that's quantitative. They're going to say, okay, we'll, we'll calculate all of this. Don't do that. Don't do that. This is our, don't, this is our domain expertise. And we're not going to, we shouldn't give it up just because we don't know how to do math. Yeah. Right? I'm so yes. happy to hear you say that because that was my greatest fear that if we're not ready to pick up that baton, Someone that it will go yeah. under finance where it will probably die because then they see it as, an again, a necessary expense. Yes. One that needs to be cut and managed. Yeah, right? exactly. yeah. So that the inclination, right, that the come from from a CFO is to cut whatever expense they can. Because they can't control the revenue, but they can control the expense. So I'm going to control what I can control. <laughs> and when 50, 60, 70, 80% of your operating budget is going to HR, it's really easy to cut one, two, three percent and have it drop right to the bottom line, right? It's super leverageable. Mm -hmm. But be careful, right? Mm -hmm. This hello CFOs, if you're out there listening. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. <laughs> because hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Um, cutting it's like draining your car of gasoline mm -hmm. and then okay. expecting it to turn on when you want to go someplace i, I yeah. love that so, analogy penny wise and pound foolish this is not just my opinion although it's a nice opinion mm -hmm. um it's it's grounded in evidence so we did at the conference board, we did a survey. Um, we actually did two surveys, one right before COVID and one in the middle of COVID, where we actually looked at um, the relationship between the human capital investment intensity that businesses had and their, their financial outcomes, their financial performance. And we had some qualitative information that we got from the participants as well as financial information and what we found was two really big, um, you know, revelations, I guess. The first is that organizations that have high levels of human capital investment intensity and sustained it mm -hmm. outperformed those that started cutting their HR budgets. Okay. Wow. Now, I'm not saying don't ever do a staff reduction yeah. because if you sell a business or you close a business or um, you stop create, you know, producing a product, there are business reasons to cut heads, but there shouldn't be financial reasons to cut heads. There you go. Right? So we found that companies that actually invest in people outperform organizations whose investment in people in the same industry is lower, right? So there's a, there's a positive correlation between investing in people and corporate financial outcomes. Yeah. They both, one goes up, the other goes up. One goes down, the other goes down. Second thing that we found was that organizations that use human capital analytics in managing their human capital functions had HCROI. Okay, so mm -hmm. you guys remember this from the beginning of this talk, had HCROI performance 270% higher than organizations that did not use human capital analytics because it's evidence-based, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And you change what you don't measure. That's right. Yeah. And 
I feel, I fear that the, that HR people who have the old mindset, right? Have FOFO. Fear of finding out. Oh, there you go. <laughs> finding out. They don't, don't want to know. They don't want to know. Yeah. So they either don't understand analytics. And if they do understand analytics, they don't want to apply analytics because they mm-hmm. don't want their bad performance to actually get revealed quantitatively. And that's the, you know, as Kevin said, you can't fix what you can't measure. Yeah. So and I it's think, really- I think the pandemic exposed a lot of that as well for a lot of these organizations who were just cruising along business as usual. Right? It, it kind of shine, shone the spotlight, whatever the right word is there on the HR function. Yeah. Um, Dr. Solange, this has been fantastic. We'll close with one more question. It's usually a question we, we normally ask our guests. So we'll ask you as well, um, given everything that's changed, you know, not only in the human capital realm over the last 25 years, but, you know, the last 18 months, you know, going on 20 months, you know, as business and work has changed, where do you see the future of work? You mentioned it a little bit, um, but really what do HR organizations, HR functions, HR professionals need to do to prepare themselves as we continue this evolution? Uh, Well, you know, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but I do want to thank you for setting up this last, you know, topic. Um, if so, the future of work is, I think, is a combination or the intersection between two things is understanding trends as they're occurring outside of your organization. And then it's using data analytics to understand what's going on inside of your organization um, using evidence based, data driven um, and analytics. And so I think it's it's got to be a combination of both. We need to understand the trends so that we can navigate our organizations along those lines, right? Like figuring out where the tide is. Is this tide coming in or going out? You don't want to go against the tide. It's too, it's lots of energy. So where's the world going? Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to spring this on you now. We've actually written a book about this. <laughs> That's the, um, uh, the $5 segue bonus right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> My, my co-author, Stella Lepouchard, and I um, spent the last year writing a book. The book is called Humanizing Human Capital, Invest in Your People for Optimal Business Returns. It's going to be out in August of next year. Okay. And we actually do some really interesting things in that book. The first thing we do is we do find the intersection between looking at future trends and exogenous variables and then overlaying human capital analytics for internal data to understand how companies are stacking up and how they're preparing themselves for the new trends. So that's the first thing we do. We have this um, mix, this intersection, because there are lots of books out there about human capital analytics and lots of books about the future of HR, but there isn't a book that helps you figure out how to use analytics to prepare yourselves or position the organization for the future work. The second thing we do is we, we change the lens. We reframe looking at um, human capital. So most organizations look at human capital through a corporate lens, right? Mm-hmm. We re- reframe um looking at human capital through the experience of the employee. So the employee journey. And we use a design systems thinking approach where we actually start with brand discovery and we end the journey. So brand discovery to to recruiting, to onboarding, to learning and development, to mobility, to performance management, to work, making work life work 24 Mm seven to, you know, exiting and then, you know, they, they call it the um, boomerang coming back to the sure, same sure. organization and shifting the relationship between the employer and the employee. So we talk about that whole narrative arc and experience. And then the third thing we do is we actually distinguish 20 principles that if companies adopt these principles in the way that they think about their relationship to the workforce, and I don't want to say employees because it's not just W-2 wage earners. Not anymore. Yeah. Contingent yeah. workers. It's 
digital workers. It's so any AI input, tech, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Any input into the labor part of the business model, we want you to think about. Um, so if you think about these twenty principles, it will help you gain some clarity about how to reframe your relationship to your workers. And so what's the future of work? Well, you know, I love science fiction. So (laughs) (laughs) make out on that limb and say, um, you know, people, my students ask me and, you know, other people ask me, um, you know, what, what kind of job should I be looking for? Right. And especially if they're in school, I say, you know what, you're the job that you want has probably not even been invented. Exactly. It doesn't exist yet. It doesn't exist yet. So just do just follow what makes your heart sing. Just follow what your interest is. And I mean, 20 years ago, who would have thought that we'd have a job called the data translator? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. You know works symbiotically with data scientists to actually turn what the data scientists find in their research into a story, into mm-hmm. a narrative. That that job, like who would have thought 20 years ago that there would be a job called a data translator? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think so it's, that it's, it's rapidly, rapidly changing. It's rapidly evolving. Oh, yeah. It's happening faster than I think a lot of people expected. And I think a lot of predictions and like from economists and things were predicting that this would happen by 2025, 2030, and now it's happening in a matter of months and we're all seemingly catching up. But I have a little inkling on why, right? I think it's only because 22% of businesses are using data and science to drive business decisions. So Solange, this has been an awesome interview. Um, I'm so grateful that uh, you agreed to come onto the show and grace us with really just uh, kind of your own evolution of coming from finance, having that financial background, but also recognizing the human component and what factors involved in that component directly correlate with the bottom line and the profit and loss statements that we all seemingly look at time and time again. So from Chris, from the HR Evolution team, we just wanted to say thank you so much for being a part of our show. And thanks for all the important work that you're doing to really elevate the conversation and the level of engagement HR professionals have with their own businesses and their own functions within these organizations as a whole. So thank you so much. And thanks everybody. Join us next week for the next guest. And thank you again, Dr. Solange and Chris. Um, We, we appreciate your time and your energy. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much.